For those of you who uh, don't know me, um, my name is Joe Cerisi. I'm uh, one of the pastoral staff here at Providence, and uh, it's exciting to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, last month, uh, just having a conversation with Austin, being this the week before Thanksgiving, uh, just thought it would be a good time to kind of share one aspect of Thanksgiving. And having been around here for a long time, uh, one thing that I love about Providence is that we teach uh, Scripture. We teach the Bible as inspired, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient in, in, in all things. So uh, to prepare our minds and hearts to bring God's glory in all things. Uh, that's why we read it between songs. Uh, it's embedded in songs. Uh, we read it in our prayers. Uh, so that it, we can bring glory to God in all that we do, and, and especially in times like COVID, in times of elections and all that stuff, and government mandates and unemployment and layoffs and all the things that this life throws at us, uh, conflict. Um, it's very easy to grow weary, uh, just life, and lose sight of uh, who Ultimately, we should be thankful for. You know, be thankful? <laughs> really? 2020? You know, you read them all on Facebook, all those memes, you know. 2020, really? So it's very easy to do that. So trusting in the truth of God's character is critical no matter how intense our grief or discomfort that God allows in our lives. But I have to admit, again, it's not that easy. And if you think, to yesterday or the last months uh, about times that you became unthankful or whined or last trial you face. And, 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 and I don't have, this, this is not the best news, but you can mark it down right now ahead of time. Whatever your hardship is right now and whatever your hardship will be, uh, it will almost certainly seem absurd, pointless and undeserved, and you cry out like maybe you have already thousands of times. Why? Why? And, and most of our hardships don't come as clear punishments for sin. Most of them come out of nowhere, and it baffles us. And almost everyone in this room will be tempted to direct our attention away from who must be the basis of our thanks, thanksgiving to what thinks will be the basis of our thankfulness. And, and, and Job's life is, is so important uh, regarding this process. His suffering seems to have no connection with his character. His story is recorded for us so that we might remain thankful and faithful to God no matter what he purposely allows in our lives. And so let's learn and read about Job. And I'll be walking through this passage and make some comments so there's no need to stand. Uh, as I read some of these passages. And so Job chapter 1, verse 1, I'll be reading from the ESV version. And uh, it says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job that was a blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and five female donkeys, and very many servants, so this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them 
And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, if having a large family, a ton of animals, and a lot of employees is a condition uh, for thankfulness, uh, then from an American cultural perspective, Job is a good candidate. Right? But the author here suggests to his readers something more important about him first, and that he's a man who is blameless and upright, fears God, turns away from evil, and he's up for the Father of the Year award every single year. He's just a good dad. Let's continue. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From the going to and fro on the earth, and from the walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is your, in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. As you're reading this, the reader begins to see here uh, that this world doesn't adequately answer some of life's hard questions. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are invited into a heavenly conversation to help us understand what has happened in the past, what is about to happen, and who ultimately is in control of everything on this spinning ball of dirt. Let's continue. Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, even the reader uh, is somewhat prepared that something is about to happen to Job. But they're not quite prepared to the extent of this hardship. We get a glimpse into Job's emotional response 
um, in verse 20, where it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And then it also says, He worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice Job's response here is not an admission of doing something against God or uh, that a hedge of protection existed before in the past and is now gone. It's simply a response to what he's always believed about God and his character. And, and, and the hard thing about this is a lot of people have difficulty with stories like this. I sure do. We identify more with stories like Naomi in the book of Ruth. She becomes bitter after the death of her, two husband, uh, her husband and two sons. She even changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter. And this is what she says. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Where we identify more with, with Naomi and less with Job. And what's worse is when hardships in general become our story. They become embedded within our history. But the truth about all hardships is that God is willing to subject his followers, those whom he loves, to it in order to make his good character and intentions known for his glory. And it's the reason verse 22 says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's continue into chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From the going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to in integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which he scraped himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Same accusations, same results. So what are some of the critical things that God wants us to know about him and the story? What are some theological things that we can understand here that are important to who we are as Christ followers? Well, the first thing is this, that Satan's aim and purpose in life is to distort our view of God 
or distort the biblical view of God. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And in Job chapter 1, verse 7, God asks Satan, Where have you been? Interesting question. Now, if Satan's reply, now in Satan's reply, the reader learns something really fundamental. That is his reply to God. We learn something fundamental about his nature. And that is his absolute denial of God's goodness in his character and who he is. And this is so important to understand. If Satan can change the way we think about God biblically, then we won't believe. Why would we want to trust him or even be thankful for him in all things like 2020? The goal of every temptation is not always behavior related, but it's always has something with distorting the biblical truth about God. And Satan's ultimate desire is to convince us that he is like God, like he's omniscient, and that he knows best for us. In verse 7, Satan so self-deceived that he actually believes God didn't know where he was, that he is not omniscient. The truth response here that he should have said, he never admits the truth to God. He should say, God, you're God. You're the omniscient one. You know exactly where I've been. Satan doesn't even admit to God here that he was traveling the planet seeking people to devour. His response to God is more like a stroll in the park on a sunny day. So if we want to continue working out this, 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 this dialogue, and, and linguistically, this conversation, God challenges Satan's limited knowledge with his true omniscient knowledge, revealing Satan's true intent here. It's the only reason why he brings up Job in the first place. God replies to him in verse 8, Have you considered devouring my servant Job, that there are none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan is still not impressed with God's omniscience or with Job. And in an act of illogical desperation, in verse 9, Satan finally admits something here. He admits to God's omnipotence. He's a very confused being. He's, he's shifty. And that's so important to know about him. He's, he doesn't care about us. He's all about himself. To get what he wants, he wants all the glory from us. He's a very confused person and ignorantly uses God's omnipotence against him by, by saying, Job is really not the best representation for godliness, God, because his thankfulness is tied to the stuff that you are protecting him from me. Notice God doesn't bite in this part of the dialogue and, and, and admits, oh, yeah, you, you got a good point there, Satan. You're right. I do have a hedge of protection around him, and it's the only reason why he turns away from evil. This is the weirdest argument imaginable. 
Satan is actually accusing God that he is using his omnipotence to protect Job so he can remain in his idol worship of stuff. But see, that's how Satan thinks. One minute's this, and one minute's that. He is completely untrustworthy. He's completely untrustworthy. Any temptation is going to be from the pit of deception and designed to distort our view on the goodness of God. At any rate, Satan thinks Job will cave in and abandon his God-centered, thankful life when everything he holds dear, that stuff, is taken away from him. And again, listen, doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about Job. His aim is to destroy him by getting him to curse God and prove to God that Job really worships things over him. And, and that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake here. And it's what's at stake with us. What do I ultimately worship and why? Worship is assigning value to someone or something that we are hoping holds the keys to reality and figuring out why. All the why questions. When I believe and trust that God holds those keys and that he is completely, absolutely objective about all knowledge and that he has a purpose in that knowledge for my life, I worship him. But Satan's goal is attempting to believe that he is all that, and he's not. He never was, and he never will be. One way Satan does this is in our passage is in processing or trying to help process our present hardships, and our past prosperity. And our show, story shows us that in uh, the deepest moments of Job's pain, he turns to a trusted and familiar friend, his past. Verse, chapter 2, verse 10 says, Shall we receive good from God, that which we had in the past? and not receive evil as well right now, as these verb tenses indicate. Job had a list of all the ways God demonstrated his good character to him in the past. And this present hardship was not going to deter his view of him. For Job, verse 10 is a critical. Uh, critical. Uh, in a moment of deep reflection on his past, helped him to face the present and be thankful for no and be thankful for no matter what would come upon him. So it's critical to know that Satan's goal is to distort our view, our biblical view and how we understand God. Because if that's distorted, it'll change everything. It'll change the way we believe, it'll change the way we trust, and it most certainly will change the way we act. Second thing that is important to understand in this, uh, this passage or these passages that we've uh, been reading is God is sovereign over all of Satan's activities. Hallelujah. Amen? God sets the limits and his, of his abilities, and he's not frustrated uh, by his subtlety or influence or even his stupidity. Satan cannot move without the permission of God Almighty. 
A scripture defines him as a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. God reigns him in, and everything that he does is according to his purposes. And then when you look at both of these heavenly these scenes from chapter 1 and chapter 2, God hands Job over to Satan's power. But when Satan is done with his work, Job declares in chapter 1, verse 21, that the Lord, not Satan, gives and takes away. He's the one that's sovereign in all things. Then the author makes a statement to avoid any misunderstanding that Job should not attribute Satan's work to God. Chapter 1, verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong in what he allowed in Job's life. The basis of Job's thankfulness and hope when everything was crashing around him, his 2020, worse than ours, was in his absolute conviction and belief and resiliency in God's sovereignty over Satan's activities. Which leads me to the third point. God is completely sovereign over our life, over your life, including times of prosperity and hardships. And it's kind of really important here to see that God doesn't attribute um, evidence of his good nature from Satan's perspective of reality. And it's, that's really important to understand. Satan's perspective of reality is not perspective at all. And God doesn't attribute his good character to that. He never answers Satan's accusing questions in verse 10, which are, does Job fear God for no reason? You have, have you not put a hedge around him, him and his house? And, and Satan is basically asserting himself as the only one in these heavenly conversations that have a real clear perspective of what's going on in Job's life. Nowhere in this story does God admit that the existence of Job's prosperity is a direct result of some special hedge. Nor does he admit that Job's prosperity is a result of his blamelessness or fear of him. The reason God allows this heavenly conversation and for us to be kind of invited into it, resulting in some really hardship for Job, is he knows Job. And he knows that he would respond in the same way with or without treasures. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. It's nothing new to Job. He had that same belief, even in prosperity. God is always displaying his infinite worth, and Job never hints that God went from protecting him to not protecting him. Job's faithfulness, thanksgiving, and existence hinged on the truth what he believed about God and his sovereignty. That was his hedge. If we fast forward, and we must fast forward, we come to see God's plan in bigger ways. Because the mirror that God chooses to reflect his goodness, his character, is ultimately in our Lord Jesus. Those who follow Jesus will, and those who follow Jesus will not stop following him for anything, whether it's suffering, prosperity, or fear, as we prayed, this world can throw at us. We will not stop following Jesus. We will not stop believing in the biblical character of God. 
because we have come to believe that the safest place on this planet is trusting in he's in control of whatever happens in my life, his sovereignty. So what do I do when I leave this room? How do I start living my life in response to this? Well, the first thing is, it's important every day to put off and put on. And put on and affirm the belief that whenever you're shooken up by whatever statistics come out, whatever they're reporting at your job, whatever your kids do, whatever hardships come in that day, that you will own the fact that this is not a surprise to God. And I can trust him through this. Affirm with all your heart the sovereignty of God. Romans 8.28 says, says, and it teaches us that God knows what he's doing and it is good and purposeful for my life. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Affirm Make a decision right now and keep it that when hardship comes, you'll say, God, I know that you're in control. Help me trust you. Second thing we need to do when hardships come is lament. Any weepers here? Lament. The fact is it's possible to be thankful all the time and weep at the same time through hardships. Look, after Job loses everything, what does it say in chapter 1, verse 20? It says, he rose, tore his robe, and shaved his head and fell to the ground. It's important to know that biblical lamenting is not a sign of unbelief or an unthankful heart. In the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vogrop shows us how to live between these poles of, of hardship and trusting God's goodness. He even says Job's life is to not only highlight in its innocent suffering, hardships, but to demonstrate that human questions and complaints eventually end up leading to worship, true worship. And that's what Job does. It says he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and lamented, and he worshiped. In the depths of Job's worship, The depth of his worship was because it was in his grief, not because he wanted out of it. When we worship in our grief, who do we find? We find the sovereign, almighty God. Worship is never a replacement to get out of our grief. It's to trust him in it. So it's okay to weep. Weep. Cry about your your, your hardship. Trusting in God's goodness that he is there with you. We have so many scriptures about God's presence in our hardship. So it's okay to lament and let your tears flow in thankful worship when your calamity comes, which leads me to the next point. Trust God even though you may not see him or understand what he is doing yet. 
Later in the story, in Job chapter 23, Job's struggling. But he's hanging in there. In verse 8 of 23, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. That is God. And backwards, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. But he knows the way that I take. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the portions of food. I have treasured him and who he is and his words more than the stuff that I had before and more of what I have right now. Nothing. Whatever your hardship may be right now, let the Lord give you the grace to affirm his sovereignty, be thankful in your lament, and trust him even though you don't completely understand what he is doing yet. And then last, it's hard not to conclude with the ultimate example. Trust in God's love for you, his care for you, that he was willing to allow his son to suffer hardship, even to the point of death, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the, to, to the world to suffer uh, so that he can contemn the world, but to suffer in order that the world might be saved through him. The truth about all hardship is that God is willing to subject his followers, his beloved, even his own son, the Lord Jesus, to hardship in order to make his good character and intentions known for his glory, God's ultimate example is our Lord Jesus, who we follow. For some of you, they may be your biggest step to acknowledge the fact that God is, that Jesus is God's prized example of how to live a life, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be forgiven because of what he suffered and died on the cross so that my sins can be forgiven. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So that one day, one day, Revelation 21.4 is going to take place. This day is going to happen, folks for all of us, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more because Jesus conquered death. Neither shall there be what? Mourning, crying, pain, hardship. That is our hope. We have a past that God's faithful. He's faithful and good right now and our hope to be ultimately thankful for is this is not all there is, folks. We will be with him. We will ultimately be thankful, singing, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you, for you are the lamb that was slain. That day is coming, but not yet. There's a whole lot more to learn about this life and trust him as we practice on this planet. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Job. Thank you for teaching us how deceptive and illogical and stupid and ignorant 
and just the selfishness of desire of Satan wanting your glory and go to such extreme lengths to deceive us so that we would curse you. Help us to be reminded of the truth about you and your character and your good and your purposes for our life uh, are greater beyond what we understand even now. But you know that one day that there will be no more pain, death, sorrow, or even tears. And we cling to that hope, trusting you no matter what happens to us in our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's respond singing.